Hey, I'm Roberta Blevins, and this is Life After MLM, a podcast where we worked in the stigma of failure in an industry systemically designed for you to fail. Join us as we dive into the real life stories of survivors, experts, and advocates to debunk the common myths and fallacies of cults, scams, and multi-level marketing. This month, we are teaming up with igotout.org, a consortium of cult survivors supporting the I Got Out movement of activism and education to help shine light on the commercial cults more commonly known as multi-level marketing. Throughout the month of November, follow along with us on social media as we share MLM statistics, cult education, survivor stories, and ways that you can join in on the movement. Visit igotout.org to share your MLM experience and share your I Got Out selfie using the hashtags I Got Out and I Got Out of an MLM on social media. Freedom of thought is a universal human right. Hey, Hunbots and Hunbros, we have another bonus episode for you. Today, we are going to be talking about the Amway Tool Cult scam. We've heard it talked about before, the tapes and seminars and all the things. In fact, Paul mentioned it quite a bit in the last episode. And so when Sean Munger reached out to me and said, hey, I've got a great bonus episode for you. I was like, yes, let's do this. This would be perfect for November. It is a really fascinating story. And I want to give you a heads up that I do have the audio from the Miami tape that we talk about in this. uh, And it is in the episode So hopefully it's not too jarring when it pops in. I tried to make the sound like the same. I'm still learning uh, and figuring all that stuff out. So thank you, everybody who has been helping me. I really, 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 really appreciate it. Um, But hopefully it shouldn't be too weird sounding. Sean sent me the audio and I was like, I have to put this in the episode. So thank you so much, Sean. This is a really fun chat and a really fun bonus episode, and I hope you guys enjoy it, and I will see you on Sunday with even more culty stuff. We are steering out of MLM for a little bit and going straight deep into the cult stuff, so I'll see you then. Enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Life After MLM. You guys, continuing with our MLM history education, I have a very, very special treat, a special guest, someone who knows even more than I do about some of these stories. Uh, I'd love to welcome to the show Sean Munger. He is a historian and he knows a lot about American history. So he is here today to talk to us about uh, a little bit of MLM history that you guys ask me a lot about and I really don't know a lot about. So Sean, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. I am so excited to learn all about this today with you. Great. Well, thanks, Roberta. And thank you for having me on. It's an honor. Uh, I'm a fan of the show. I've listened to it, uh, you know, week in and week out. And it's great to meet you because I I often play podcasts in my kitchen when I'm cooking. So (laughs) it's like you're in my kitchen a lot of the time. (laughs) I love it. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So it's it's great. And and I sort of fell into this story. Um, I, I am a historian and my PhD was on American environmental history of the early 19th century. But because I am, I'm not on faculty or affiliated with the university, I'm kind of what they call alt-ac, you know, alt, alternate academia. I'm sort of a generalist now, and I teach uh, history courses both online and in person. Uh, you can see some on my website, and I do a lot of, I've been doing a lot of history on my YouTube channel recently. And in fact, this subject came up, I, I decided to do a 
video, uh, like a, a real in-depth video essay on this particular subject. And it's going to be on my YouTube channel and it should be out by the time this episode uh, drops. So you can find it on my YouTube channel. Um, I'm also probably going to write some companion articles on my Substack, which is seanmunger.substack.com. I, because I'm a historian, I, I'm, I don't like primarily identify as being in the anti MLM space. This is just a subject that kind of came up in my research uh, that I got interested in. I am not an MLM survivor myself. Uh, my father is. Uh, he was involved in Amway briefly in the 90s and kind of got out before too much damage was done. But I am very familiar with the kind of the abuses of MLMs. And uh, you came to my attention because of your appearance on the on the Lula Rich show. And um, so, and also I've, part of what drew me to this is I've always had an interest in a very deep interest in what I call organized deception. So that would be scams, cults, and conspiracy theories. And why do people believe them and how do they get started and how do they sustain themselves and that sort of thing. So um, that's kind of how I got attracted to this subject. So um, the basic story that uh, I'm going to tell today is about the foundation of what we could call the tools cult or the tools business, and specifically the kind of epic battle that occurred between the tools kingpins and the Amway Corporation. This is in the early 1980s. And this was a battle that the Amway Corporation ultimately lost with huge repercussions. Uh, they continue to the present day. So I'm not I'm not really focused on the present day. I am aware that that the tools business still exists. It's kind of morphed because technology is not what it the same that it was in the 60s and 70s when this was ramping up. But I know they do something now. Don't they have like a like an Amway Spotify clone or something? You know, I'm not exactly sure what it is. There are several different things that people have sort of said that they had to sign up for. I know there was some sort of like Amway messenger that they had to pay for okay. and they had to speak to each other through the messenger. And then obviously when you're kicked out, you lose access to right. this uh, and you pay monthly for it and different things like that. So I would not be surprised if there was some sort of Spotify or Discord or something very similar yeah, as an that, Amway product as well. I think I saw in a YouTube video, someone mentioned something like that and the message system you're describing is the the descendant of what used to be called Amvox, which in the 80s and particularly 90s, this is when voicemail was a big, you know, ooh, voicemail. Wow, what a great innovation. But this was a service that you had to pay for. And basically, you paid for this service to get pre-recorded spam messages from Amway Kingpins, basically, is what it was. And it was something wow. like 30 bucks a month in the in the mid-90s. <laughs> so, so let's take it back to the very beginning about what even is a tool in Amway mm -hmm. and like what that looks like and how those were developed and, and who developed them. Sure. Okay. So really the two biggest pieces of this story that I'm going to tell are the uh, Postma memo and the Miami tape. Uh, however, it's, I'm going to explain what those are, but it's going to take us a while to get there, but I promise we will get there. And before we get into the historical story, it's good to have a conceptual understanding of what we're talking about. So tools means basically motivational tapes, seminars, rallies, and then the ancillary stuff like Amvox that we just talked about. So this is actually separate from the Amway MLM business. The Amway Corporation sells soap. 
uh, food bars, Neutralite was their, you know, their first product, uh, energy drinks, which I'm told are terrible, <laughs> but, uh, you know, other incidental merchandise. Um, it's it, as with all MLMs, the products really are not that important, but, right. but the Amway corporation makes its money through the sale of these products. That's its income stream. So the way to think about this, and on my YouTube video, I, I did a, uh, a diagram of this. So think about two pyramids, and they're not exactly one nested inside the other, but they have significant overlap. And one pyramid representing the Amway Corporation, the Amway MLM business is much smaller than the other. So the second pyramid, which is much, much larger, is the tools business or the tools cult. And in the visual representation, you could think of that, imagine that pyramid being kind of semi-transparent because it gets noticed a lot less. Or from a distance, people will assume that it's sort of a shadow of the Amway pyramid, but they're actually separate. So these two structures, they're symbiotic. And in fact, neither one can exist without the other, but they are separate. They're under separate ownership and separate leadership. And in fact, the relationship between them is historically very acrimonious. They don't like each other very much, but each of them recognizes that the other is a necessary evil. So they kind of have to live together, which is a really bizarre dynamic. It's such a parasitic relationship. It's really funny. Yeah, it, it, it's strange. So most discussion of Amway that I've seen in the anti-MLM space uh, you know, blogs and YouTube channels and such focuses on that smaller, much more visible pyramid. And these are the major questions about how much money will you make? Is it a scam? You know, the 99% who lose money, that sort of, those sorts of discussions focus on this smaller pyramid. And the 1979 FTC ruling, which the Amway advocates trumpet to the rooftops as the seal of legitimacy, basically, that pertains only to that smaller pyramid. And the statistics, the 99% that lose money, that's all the smaller pyramid. When anti-MLM people talk about Amway, that's most of the time, that's what they're talking about. However, when people talk about Amway being a cult or cult-like, what they are really talking about is that larger pyramid. That's the tools business. And here's the vast majority of the money is made. And this is where most of the abuses uh, occur. It's best to describe the legality of this as untested. The tools business has not been declared legal by the FTC, but it has not also been declared illegal. They managed to keep it out of court most of the time. There are a lot of court cases that have been filed against the tools kingpins, but as with almost all Amway litigation, it's usually brought by former distributors who are bound by non-disclosure agreements and arbitration agreements. So that's how they keep it out of court. But even a lot of anti-MLM people assume that these pyramids are congruous and that Amway is like a monolithic phenomenon, and it's not. So if, if you don't want to think about the pyramids, I understand why <laughs> that, that image might be problematic for people. Um, the way to think about it, if, if you're a Star Trek fan, it's like the Borg from Star Trek. So the Borg are cybernetic organisms. They're like they're robots built on like kind of a human chassis. And so the Borg need both components to survive, their human parts and their, their robot parts. But focusing on the human part of the Borg, that's the Amway MLM business, obscures the nature of the robot that's much more extensive. So if that makes any sense at all, I don't know if it does. <laughs> you know what? It absolutely did. Like, I totally, I totally followed you there. The content of the tools themselves is 
it's shockingly thin. It, it, it's really weird, and it, and it's kind of an Ouroboros. It's kind of a snake eating its tail. So what happens is the Amway Diamond Distributors, and Diamond is a level of achievement in it. They have, all these MLMs have these the tiers, and they all have you know weird names, you know black belts or you know the equivalent of that kind of stuff. So the diamond distributors often put on a bunch of rallies and seminars and they get motivational speakers to go to these or more often they'll get their own people to speak to riled up crowds with kind of vague sort of bromides about success or believing in yourself or things like that. And often they, they'll talk about how many material possessions you'll have, you know, Cadillacs and boats and mansions and that kind of stuff once you go diamond in Amway. And what they do, the, the reason why this is an Ouroboros is they tape these speeches and then sell the tapes to distributors. So in the <laughs> in the 80s and 90s, it was about five bucks a pop. And again, that was you know, 30, 40 years ago. And by some accounts, the tapes cost like 50 or 60 cents to make. And so all the rest of that is profit. It's wow. just it, it's it's incredible. It, so you can you can tell that this is that this is questionable because like realistically, how much motivation does an MLM salesperson really need? It would be one thing if the tools were actually sales advice or training or something, you know, something like that, but they're really not. It's like, you know, what color Cadillac do you want? I mean, that that's like what most of this stuff is. But weirdly, these materials are highly addictive. And all of the sources, uh, what I call the uh, the apostates, these are people like uh, the people who've written books, like Phil Kearns, uh, Stephen Butterfield, Ruth Carter, which is a pseudonym, uh, Eric Scheibler. Those are the apostates, basically. But all of them unanimously report that the tools have this weird mind-altering and behavioral changing effect. You know, getting, quote unquote, getting off tapes is basically a prerequisite for getting out of Amway because that's the programming that is just constantly bombarding these people. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, anybody listening that's been in an MLM knows, you know, you got to be on the Zoom calls, you got to be on the weekly thing, you got to check in with your team. And it's that same sort of rhetoric over and over again, that same motivational, you can do it, pull yourself mm -hmm. up, hard work equals success. But in most MLMs, there's a stopping point, right? The Zoom call ends, you have to go pick up your kids, you got to start making dinner, whatever. Maybe you're hopping on a call. But like, these are tapes, you're like playing in your car, mm -hmm. you're listening to them constantly. If you've even seen the show on Becoming a God in Central Florida, that was on Showtime with Kirsten Dunst mm -hmm. about Amway. They even talk about these tapes and they've got like the seat in the car just filled with the tapes and they're listening to the tapes. And the, I mean, it, it's, it's constant. And you never escape from that. Mm -hmm. And it is this this cultic rhetoric over and over and over again. You never, ever, ever get an escape if it's always in your ears and you're always playing these tapes. Are yeah. they selling brand new tapes every single time they do a speech? Yeah, pretty much. And you're encouraged they, but to they also, purchase but, those too? Yeah, but also I, I think they just recycle them so heavily that it's unlikely you're going to come across the same one twice. I mean, they've been recording these for 45 years, so, you know, you, there's no way you're going to hear all. But if you do hear, you know, you, you hear one of these speeches and essentially you've heard them all. I mean, that's that's why I say it's like all of them are like, what color Cadillac do you want? That's basically the message. How rich are you going to be? And, and it's it's never a present thing. It's never like, let's work on this now. It's like, what's going to happen once you get rich, which you aren't yet. Right. And that prosperity gospel. That's exactly right. Yeah. The Christianity yeah. aspect of yeah. Amway. Yeah. We see it a lot in, in LDS church as well. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, this comes into the story in a big way a little bit later on. So uh, the pioneer of the tools business was uh, Dexter Yeager. He is a very well-known figure within Amway and also the religious right in the history of conservatism. And he's virtually unknown outside of those arenas. Totally pivotal in the history of MLM, in American business history of the past 50 years, and also the history of American conservatism. So this guy is eventually going to get a scholarly historical biography. No one's written it yet. He's going to get pages in history books. Uh, virtually right now, virtually nothing is written about him from a historical standpoint. He doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, if you can believe it. So the uh, basic kind of basic facts about this guy, Dexter Yeager, he was born in Fulton, New York. Uh, later lived in Rome, New York, which was the site of Woodstock 99, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but he was working as a salesman. This is in the 1960s. Uh, he was born in 1939. As with a lot of these figures, particularly these motivational sort of kingpins, most of what is public about them is what you could call hagiography. And that's a medieval term, meaning, you know, the, the biographies of saints in the Middle Ages were hagiographies that were fed to the faithful, basically, to kind of keep up the church. And sort of these motivational people will often do this a similar thing. So for example, in, I mean, his whole livelihood was talking endlessly for decades. So of course he told the story hundreds of thousands of times, uh, but he emphasized this sort of born salesman type of narrative. Uh, he claimed that when he was in the sixth grade, he sold bottles of soda to construction workers on a nearby construction site and then he raised his profits by starting to buy the sodas wholesale. And that's the punchline of the story. Yeah. It, and and I sort of doubt this, this narrative. I mean, it might've happened, but people who often will identify themselves as like, I'm the master salesman will often tell this kind of sort of born salesman story about themselves. I'm thinking about the, uh, the lady who co-founded uh, LuLaRoe and yeah, she told the story about when she was a child, her mother uh, throwing the $5 bills around the house. I don't think that story actually happened, but that's the same, comes from the same kind of hagiography type of place. Yeah. And even Billy McFarlane from Fire Festival, he mm. had a very similar, like, I was fixing the crayons of my classmates in elementary school for a dollar sort of yeah. <laughs> origin yeah. story as well. It, it, it's important for, for these people to have that story because it's like, oh, it's, you know, they're born salesmen. This is what, you know, and again, it, it's, it's there's sort of a religious angle, you know, God ordained them to do this and sales as this holy calling, basically where it's just it's mainly just hustling but it's kind of by virtue of these stories it's turned into this holy calling that becomes very noble um, which i find really bizarre and fascinating so in jaeger's backstory he also emphasizes poverty but there's no reason to suspect uh that that's not true it probably was true because of course he was a salesman this is the 60s so he jumped from a job to job he sold tools, I mean, the actual real kind of tools, like from Sears. <laughs> uh, he was a car salesman, and he often mentioned that he was a beer salesman for the West End Brewery, and supposedly he was a heavy drinker, and of course, you know, Christianity cured him of that. So in 1964, he becomes a an Amway distributor, and this is only five years after the initial founding of Amway, so we're real early in the story. But a key fact here is that he didn't make very much money at this because within a couple of years, he's looking for a job again. 
He did build a substantial downline, and that's the organization, the vertically organized lines of sponsorship. But I find this really interesting that he joined in 1964 and lost money because how can one of the earliest adopters, I mean, when we talk about this being a pyramid structure and all the early entrants are the ones who make the money, but if the pyramid was already exhausted within five years, that kind of shows kind of how flimsy this whole business really was. Wow. That's an excellent point. Yeah. So uh, sometime, date unknown, but probably I think 1966, uh, someone, and we're not sure who it was, it might have been Fred Hansen, who was, I believe, one of the original Amway distributors recruited in the 1950s by Rich DeVos. But he loaned Jaeger a copy of a record. Uh, This is Earl Nightingale's 1956 spoken word record called The Strangest Secret. This was like the OG motivational tape. It was a big fad in the 50s and 60s. It won a couple of awards. And it was like the first like market-tested you know, motivational audio program that sold in any kind of quantity. So Nightingale himself was inspired by Napoleon Hill, who wrote Think and Grow Rich in 1937, which is at the absolute top of the classic Amway reading list. Hill was a con man with a long string of failed businesses, but he was riding that kind of first wave of motivational self-help that came out of the 1930s. This was the same cultural phenomena that gave us Dale Carnegie's manipulative How to Win Friends and Influence People, which inspired, among other people, Charles Manson. So (laughs) you see the provenance of all of this stuff. (laughs) It's like it always links back somehow to like the worst possible thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. So anyway, so uh, Jaeger gets hooked on the uh, Earl Nightingale record. And fall of 1966, again, dates approximate, but that's what I think this happened. Jaeger sponsors uh, Tony Renard. Uh, I have that name, but I, I know very little about him. But he had an interest in the Earl Nightingale tapes. And, and Nightingale set up a, a company to start distributing more of these tapes after the record sold big. So this guy, Renard, bought a secondhand tape recorder from Dexter Jaeger and started duplicating motivational tapes. So the source for the story uh, is a guy named Doug Weed, spelled W-E-A-D. Uh, I'm going to talk a lot about him. He's the source for this story. He admitted that he originally got the facts wrong, but then he corrected it. But he called this event, quote, the best investment of the 1960s. And he was probably right. Uh, now, Doug Weed is an unreliable source. Uh, I'm going to talk about him. Um, and I'll also explain a little bit later on why we're sort of forced to rely on him for certain things even though I wish we had better sources. This is, again, historians speak. It's all about sources. So in the late 60s, uh, motivational tapes start moving through Jaeger's downlines. And at first, they were not a profit center. But similar things were happening with other, the kind of other proto MLMs, uh, both Holiday Magic and uh, Coscott Interplanetary. These early MLMs were starting to develop motivational arms and uh, what's his name? You 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 mentioned him before we started recording. Uh, William Penn Patrick. Yeah, right. So yeah, they were also in this kind of this motivational space. And actually, the Amway Corporation itself did a little bit of this stuff. They had a small operation for motivational stuff, but it was just you know your kind of milk toast sales motivation. So in 1970, a guy named Bill Britt, he was a Korean War vet. 
uh, minor official at a couple of municipal governments in the Charlotte, North Carolina area. But he joined Amway and he was sponsored uh, by a guy. There's a weird website called the Amway Wiki. I don't know if you've ever come across it, but it basically it's just a like a a genealogy site of, of upline and downline sponsorships. So you can trace who sponsored who. I have seen that website in different yeah. research things. Yes. It's, it's weird. I don't even know who, who uh, puts it up and it goes down every couple of days. So you, we won't always see it, but it's very weird. But anyway, Brit was sponsored by a guy named Dominic Conigliaro. I don't know if I have that uh, right, but his sponsor was Dexter Yeager. And actually Conigliaro was eventually terminated by Amway. Uh, for reasons on, I don't understand. But anyway, sometime after 1970, but probably not long after, the true origin of the tools business starts. So this happened in 1970 or 71. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read you the exact words of the source that we have for this, which is unfortunately Doug Weed. Do you ever wonder how much of your personal data is out there on the internet just for anyone to find? I promise it's more than you think. Your name, contact info, social security number, home address, even information about your family members. It's all being compiled by data brokers and openly sold online. This can lead to a lot of problems, including identity theft, phishing attempts, harassment, and unwanted spam calls. But now you can protect your privacy with Delete Me. Signing up for the service is super easy. Just provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts take it from there. They send you regular, personalized privacy reports showing what info they found, where they found it, and what they removed. I got my report, and I was floored with the results. Of the 105 data brokers they checked, 83 of them had my data. Delete Me then removed 173 listings of my personal data off the internet. And they make sure that it stays off too. Take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me at a special discount just for our listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and use promo code MLM at checkout. The only way to get the 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash MLM and enter code MLM at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash MLM code MLM. Head over to quince.com and grab yourself a little something something and support the show by supporting our sponsors. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and say hello to lightweight fabrics and classic styles. I have been taking advantage of the beautiful weather and getting outside for daily walks, and I cannot say enough good things about the Flow Knit High Rise Boyfriend Jogger from Quince. Seriously, running errands, doing school pickups, swinging by the farmer's market, or taking Jaja for a stroll around the lake, these bad boys are versatile. I love the deep pockets, the high waistband, and the internal hidden drawstring. They're quick drying, moisture wicking, antimicrobial, and the four-way stretch makes them so comfortable. They're made with 88% recycled polyester, and the Global Style Standard Certified Yarn dramatically lowers environmental impact by diverting landfill and ocean-bound plastic. Not to mention using recycled claims standard-approved dyeing, washing, and manufacturing processes with low water and eco-friendly dyes. They have become an absolute favorite, and you can save up to 59% off the high-end counterpart by shopping with Quince. Throw on a cotton modal scoop neck tee and some sneakers, and you've got a perfect, effortless outfit. 
Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash MLM for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash MLM to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash MLM. So he says, quote, then a bright young man who will remain nameless changed everything. He sat across from Dexter Yeager and Bill Britt in the coffee shop of the Fontainebleau Hotel, which is in Miami, by the way, and told Yeager that for a $50,000 investment, he could buy the latest machinery and set up his own tape duplicating company. Dexter turned him down, but Britt said, I'll do it. And so the modern networking tape business was born, end quote. So oh that was the origin God. of the tools business right there. Well, and Bill Britt is the originator of the line of affiliation in Amway, Britt Worldwide, which is right. mass. Yeah. And then there's also kinship there between that and, uh, is it Network 21? Because Hartice, sure Hartice is in is in that genealogy also somewhere because his name comes up in this story too. But he's in the minor fringes, but he was involved. The bright young man who will remain nameless, we don't know who that is. Was it Doug Weed? Uh, it is consistent with the way that Weed talked about himself. He was 24 in 1970, and this was on his blog uh, from 2004. But uh, we know this had to be the early 70s because it was after Britt joined Amway in 1970, but it was before 1973. I spoke privately to a, a source who talked a lot about how in 1973, the Jaeger organization was trying to expand into the UK. So the tools business was clearly entrenched by then. And we also know that the tools business was big by 1973, because that's when Stephen Butterfield, one of the original apostates, that's when he encountered it. So again, we're talking about okay. a narrow window of time here. Wow. Okay. So sometime between 1970 and 1973, it blew up. Yeah. And it, this is a real significant fact because somebody, if it was Doug Weed, whoever the nameless young man was, somebody noticed that there was enough profit potential in the tools to offer a significant return on a $50,000 investment. So $50,000 in 1970, that's about $371,000 in today's money. So that's not an insignificant investment. And this was also the time when cassette tapes were starting to become real popular. So it kind of lines up with that uh, that same thing. Wow, yeah. Very, very interesting. So uh, Brit began manufacturing tapes on a mass basis. And Jaeger started distributing them because he had the largest downline. So he started distributing them through his downline. So that's how this business got built very quickly. And that's how both of them got very, very rich. And Britt seems to have offered Jaeger a sweetheart deal on tapes that came from Britt's warehouse. And Jaeger eventually had his own facility to do this. But Britt had the original facility. So he offered the, the, him the tapes at wholesale, and then they apparently split the profits. And they, they must have been staggeringly huge. Stand. I could only imagine because Brit's in Jaeger's downline mm -hmm. and Brit is the sort of the mastermind of this whole thing. And he's just feeding it to mm -hmm. Jaeger, who is an OG and has even more downlines and more pyramids underneath him and just disseminating it through everything. Right. Yeah. And they, and this was this was a market that they invented. And a need they invented, a yeah. need, yeah. a problem, a product solution. It was all invented by them. Mm -hmm. And it was invented because there were, they were not making money at Amway. 
That's the key is in the Miami tape, they admit that, that there was no money in Amway. And so that's why they invented this business that they could make money from. But it's close enough to Amway to be symbiotic and it's, and it's, flow with it as opposed to being a competitor of. Right. It sort of hides in Amway's shadow, but it becomes a much bigger business than the real Amway business, which is just bizarre, really bizarre. So something mysterious happened in 1972, and I don't know what it was. At the Miami meeting, a few people connected with Amway make vague references to something big that happened in 1972 because somebody says something like, you know, oh, I, w- I remember 1972 or I was there or something like that. And I have no sources that talk about this. It's dangerous for historians to conjecture when you don't have sources, but it might have been an early attempt by the Amway Corporation to rein in this tools business or to get a piece of it. Again, that's what I suspect, but I don't know that. That's just a supposition. I wonder if there's anybody listening who was in Amway at that time and knows what 1972 means and could connect some dots. I think one of the reasons we don't know is because that was right before the apostates joined. Because I think Butterfield was the one who was in earliest in 73, I believe. And so he wasn't around whenever whatever happened, happened. But if there had been someone who was around at that time who wrote a book, we might know more about it, but we just don't. So again, this cone of silence, this is why this is so This is so hard. I hate that the only source we have for this origin story, the meeting between Jaeger and Britt and the quote-unquote bright young man, I hate that Doug Weed is the only source for this. Uh, Weed, he was an author, he was a press agent, a Republican Party activist, a Christian fundamentalist, of course, a motivational speaker, and sometime historian, although his history books are terrible. But he was the connection between Dexter Yeager, the Republican Party, and especially the Bush family, because uh, Doug Weed worked in the uh, Bush the First White House. You can you can tell I teach medieval history because I I don't use the initials or refer to them as Bush the First and Bush the Second. <laughs> Bush the First. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Doug Weed ghost wrote many of Dexter Yeager's motivational books, including the original one was called "Don't Let Anyone Steal Your Dream." This was published in 1978. Uh, I read it a couple of weeks ago. I read it in about 20 minutes. Uh, it's an absolute nothing burger. There's just nothing there. But it's totally reflective of this cultic style of tapes and rallies. And again, they're all kind of the same. Incidentally, uh, Weed in the 2000s, he became infamous because he leaked tapes of phone conversations that he made between himself and Bush II when he was governor of Texas. And he taped those conversations without Bush's knowledge, which is illegal or or possibly illegal. So at this point, and I remember, I remember when this happened. This was about two thousand seven or so. It's when Bush the second was still president, but much of the conservative punditocracy kind of turned on him at that point. So he ended up in the Ron Paul camp, and eventually, of course, Trump. He did write some laudatory books about Trump. Uh, but Weed appears to have joined Amway about 1981, but he was already deeply involved with Jaeger at that point. He was his press agent earlier than that. So he had a, some distributorships. His voice is on the Miami tape, for example, uh, but appears to have gone inactive when Bush the first uh, came to the White House in 1989. So the, the way to treat this source, I believe the factual matters that uh, Weed talks about are probably correct, but he's very unreliable because of the spin he puts on them. So These writings that I've been talking about, they're all from his blog dated 2004. And at that time, he was arguing online with various anti-MLM commenters. 
And his take was the the tools are the Amway business is good. The tools are valuable, but there's a couple of bad apples that have spoiled it. That was sort of his his argument. Yeah, that's that's pretty textbook. Yeah, it, it, very very standard. Um, uh, he he died in uh, 2021, so he's no longer with us. It's interesting that the unreliability of Doug Weed as a source is kind of similar to the process of doing medieval or ancient history. The, the reason why this is, is because in medieval or ancient history, you might have only one or a handful of sources about a particular event, a battle, or the reign of a king or something. And the sources you can tell are unreliable or problematic. So as a historian, you have to kind of read between the lines to try to figure out factually what they're talking about. And I, I had to do the exact same process when looking at the stuff from Doug Weed. It's because there's no other witnesses that are willing to talk. It has to make it really difficult when diving into this sort of stuff. It's very strange. Anyway, uh, back to what we do know. Uh, during the 70s, uh, Dexter Yeager got very, very rich on the tools business. This is well documented that in this period, distributors were heavily pressured to listen to the tapes and read motivational books, some of which were written and written in quotes by uh, Yeager or his wife. They had to attend rallies, that sort of thing. And this is when the uh, you'll hear Amway people talk about this, the tape of the week or the standing order tape. Have you heard people talk about those? Yeah, I've definitely heard those phrases before. Yeah. So it's like basically you say, oh, yeah, put me down for the tape of the week. So, you know, $5 a week, I'm going to buy whatever tape they send me and I, you don't have a choice. And if you cancel it, then that's bad news because you don't believe in the business and you're uh, engaging in uh, stinking thinking which was a, a a term that Dexter Yeager would throw around a lot. You know, get rid of stinking thinking or flush that job. You know, a lot of little catchphrases that he came up with. So another important fact, uh, Yeager was a member of an organization called the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International. That's a mouthful. Yeah, even the acronym is a mouthful, FGBMFI. Uh, it was founded in California in the like 50s, I think. But this was basically a hard right uh, Christian organization based in the Pentecostal and, uh, evangelical movement. This was expanding through the South in the 50s, heavily involved with you know faith healing and those sorts of things. And this was the basis of what we now call prosperity gospel. So would not surprise you to know that others in this same organization or connected to it, Oral Roberts, uh, the Austin family, father of today's Joel Austin, and televangelist Jim Baker, who of course became a close friend of Dexter Yeager. And, yeah, bingo. Yeah, yeah I just got bingo. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, how rich was Dexter Yeager? Well, in 1980, which was the height of his tools business, he had a mansion outside Charlotte, which uh, Amway distributors would flock to as a pilgrimage site. I mean, literally like a medieval pilgrimage site. He had a collection of Rolls Royces, yachts, and then the infamous coach, you know, big bus. Like these items pop up in the imagery spun on the on the tools themselves. Because one thing you hear a lot if you listen to these, I, I don't recommend listening to very many of them, but because they just they do sort of rot your brain. But they encourage distributors to put up pictures often on the refrigerator or the bathroom mirror of the stuff you want when you go diamond in Amway. And like the coach, the bus inevitably makes an appearance. This is, again, this is so medieval because it's a, it's iconography. It's like Byzantine iconography. 
you know, you have these symbols that appear on the walls of churches and mosaics or whatever. And this is exactly what they're doing, where you cut out pictures of Cadillacs and boats and you put them on your refrigerator. But the coach appears in the iconography all the time, uh, including among people like my dad, who never before had expressed any interest in their lives in owning these sorts of things. But when you get into Amway, this this starts happening. And this is a telltale sign of mental manipulation. So if you go to someone's house and you see pictures of boats and Cadillacs and and coaches on their refrigerator, they're probably in Amway. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's I didn't even like realize like these dream boards that the MLMs, mm-hmm. it goes right back to like medieval iconography. Wow. Oh yeah, totally. Very Byzantine. <laughs> but what's weird to me, I mean, just talking about the content of the tools, it's like, it's never transformative. It's not like the message is not like get rich so you can, you know, go to Nepal and find meaning in your life or, you know, something like that. It's always like, here's the boat or the mansion or the fur coat, and this is the meaning of life. And there's no deeper reflection required. I find this so interesting because that appears to have been Dexter Yeager's personal view of wealth and accomplishment, that it's just an end unto itself. It's not like I got rich and I was able to become a better person. It's like I got rich, period. It's like manifest destiny. Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's just, just this weird like manifestation of just materialism for its own sake. And and the you can always tell the, the character of an organization reflects the values of its founder. And the tools business definitely reflects who Dexter Yeager was as a person in this very weird way. This is also the beginning, I think, of, of the, the fake it till you make it ethos. Because, you know, you have to appear, and this comes up in the Postma memo, but you have to appear in Amway, you have to appear successful. And if you're not, then you have to take on the trappings of someone who is rich. So you have to drive up in a Cadillac or whatever, even if it's not yours. Such a weird thing to me. The fake it to make it culture goes into the bootstrap culture. Like, well, I'm just going to live like this and it's going to mm-hmm. motivate me to be able to actually achieve this. You're, you just fake it until you get there. If mm-hmm. you continue to live this lavish lifestyle, you just yeah, live it. And- you just live it till you become it. That's what Deanne would say. Yeah. Deanne from LuLaRoe literally would tell us, she said, I don't like fake it till you make it. I like fake it till you become it. And I was like, well, that doesn't really rhyme. <laughs> but yeah, but you know what I mean? Like even yeah, that was yeah. like, till you become it. It was just, it's even more inspirational and more manipulation. Like just, it just the things that I remember. Yeah. Yeah. In conversations. And, and, and I've heard, I've heard so many guests on your show talk about that, particularly because many of your guests were in MLMs in the social media era. And so that's where Instagram keeps coming up where it's so perfectly tailored for that kind of thing. You know, you just post a post a selfie of yourself standing in front of a Cadillac and tell everybody that it's yours, even if it isn't. Yeah, just <clears throat> yeah, very strange. So we know that, uh, <clears throat> you know, hard numbers are, are difficult to find, but it appears that and I've, I've tried to be careful about this. Uh, but so I'm going to include just one number that I know, which is by 1990, Jaeger was pulling in approximately $30 million a year. And the vast majority of that uh, came from tools. Um, he also had many other businesses, you know, real estate and that sort of thing. But uh, he boasted in rallies that he made seventy million a year. And again, you have to kind of credit this type of thing with a grain of salt, but it, it is at least possible. So I don't know. Wow. Yeah, but we're talking big money. I mean, big exponential big money. money. Yeah, huge money. So by the late seventies, it kind of looks like the beginning of the end for Amway. 
but again, Amway is the product supplier only, and most of the products it sells are to distributors who are kept in the organization and keep buying because Jaeger keeps them hooked on the tools. So again, you think of those two overlapping pyramids. So the big pyramid's going gangbusters, but the little pyramid is starting to hit really hard times. And the 70s was bad for Amway because the FTC had killed Holiday Magic Stone Dead, went on to kill Coscott Interplanetary Dead. Incidentally, veterans of both organizations reinvented themselves in Amway. So it's kind of like they they sort of jumped from ship to ship as the ships were sinking. Like so, rats. Yeah, very much like it. So 1975, the Amway versus FTC case gets going. And I think that the Amway corporate leadership, this is the DeVos, uh, Van Andel, the, you know, the suits basically in Ada, Michigan. I think they were distracted by this battle. And it, it makes sense that they would have been because this was life or death stakes for their whole company. And so they didn't really do anything about the tools business that they knew, they clearly knew was growing at this time, but they were just too distracted to pay attention to it. Oh, wow. So just because of all of the legal battles from 75 to 79, mm -hmm. the tools business flourished yeah. really pretty much to a point where you yeah, could stop it. Yep. So a lot of students of Amway history know about the uh, FDC uh, decision from 1979. I'm not going to go that much into it, except I, I think it's somewhat mischaracterized in anti-MLM circles. It's usually talked about as a huge victory for Amway, but it, it it really wasn't. It was a functional victory for them. And again, we're talking about the little pyramid here. We're talking about the Amway Corporation. But I think that the Amway suits understood that what had really happened was they managed to fight the FTC to a draw, basically. So they didn't really win. They were still alive. But if they cross, the FTC drew these lines, these very hazy lines between theoretically legal and illegal pyramid scheme. And of course, Robert Fitzpatrick has been very active, you know, arguing in favor of, of, of revamping this standard. The Amway suits realized that if they cross that very thin line, that the FTC would renew the assault at any moment. So it's like, you know, they're in the castle and they've got the drawbridge up and the attacking army is being held at bay for the moment. They could renew the attack at any time. That's what I think that the decision, how, how it was seen. And I, I think this because there's evidence that they perceived the tools business as having the potential to push them over that line and cause the FTC to come after them again. And they were afraid of that because the tools kingpins didn't consider themselves to be bound by the FTC decision because it applied to Amway, not to them. So there's this disconnect between how they solve the, themselves. So a partial answer to this problem was to change the FTC. And fortunately, this is 1980. So Ronald Reagan was running for president. His campaign biography was written by Doug Weed, by the way. Weed and Reagan, they were wired into the religious right. Think of Oral Roberts and that organization with the, with the long name. That was the perfect front for the free enterprise ideology. And that was pushed very, very heavily by the Jaeger organizations. So in fact, uh, Amway distributors uh, fired up by Jaeger pushed very heavily for Reagan. Uh, for example, at the 1980 Free Enterprise Days in uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, which was Jaeger's home territory, uh, this is the Uber rally that was held by the Jaeger organization. This is in late August of 1980. There was a rumor started, probably deliberately, that Reagan was going to be the surprise keynote speaker. Uh, he didn't show. I think the rumor was probably started to sell tickets, not as if they wouldn't have sold anyway. Uh, but Jaeger himself managed to sell out the Charlotte Coliseum twice. They held this, they held this thing twice in, in one weekend. 
and this event is described in detail in Stephen Butterfield's book, Amway, The Cult of Free Enterprise, which I think is the the one of the apostate texts that gets it the most right. And because he do, he really does get into the the tools cult, basically, where the others, particularly uh, Scheibler's book is, is wonderful, but it's very focused on that business side about, you know, the losing money and the fake it till you make it and that kind of thing. But uh, cult free enterprise is really focused on the on the tools business. So then we get to 1982. This is a terrible year for Amway, but an excellent one for the for the tools business. Uh, but for the Amway suits, uh, it's a bad year. Sales are down. There's lots of bad press. The first apostate text comes out. That's Phil Kearns' book, Fake It Till You Make It, um, which they had some success in uh, uh, suppressing some of these early books and particularly early websites. Uh, that's later on in the 90s. But there's increasingly brazen abuses by some of the diamond kingpins. Uh, for example, in a very interesting story that I wish I knew more about, but sometime in late 1982, there was a West Coast distributor. His name was Leonard Hall, and he basically went rogue. I know very little about him, but what happened was he apparently saw the money that was being made in the tools business, and he decided to make a grab for some of that money. Although the majority of Amway distributors were wired into one of Jaeger's organizations, which I think had at one point two thirds of all Amway distributors, not all of them were. And the tools were not ubiquitous. So it's not like every single Amway distributor was consuming these tools. So this guy, Leonard Hall, tried to tried to pick off the ones that were not already in Jaeger's organization. And he tried to build what the Amway suits refer to as a system, that's a mini tools cult, basically. He tried to build a business of his own to sell tapes to them, roping in the distributors who weren't already addicted to Jaeger's tools. So this guy went up and down California poaching distributors to join his line. And as I'm sure you know from being in an MLM, this is the ultimate sin, which is what they call cross-lining. This was bad. Hall was ultimately terminated by Amway, which I always, it's so strange to me when I encounter people being terminated because aren't they supposed to be independent business owners? I don't know. Potato, potato. <laughs> yeah. So basically Amway killed uh, his business, possibly as a peace offering to hold off the, the wrath of the Jaeger affiliated diamonds. I don't know that for sure. That's just a supposition, but that's what I think happened. There's talk on the Miami tape of this Leonard Hall thing, which happened in 1982. And this was not the only thing, because they, they say this type of thing also happened again. But this definitely got the attention of the Amway suits. And so in late 1982, they commission a comprehensive internal study of the entire tools business. Now, there's a couple of memos, a couple of studies that they generated. And I've only been able to get a copy of one of them. I know there's others out there that I would love to find. But the big one is uh, uh, what's called the Postma memo. This is unbelievable. This is one of the most extraordinary documents in the whole history of multi-level marketing. So this is a memo. It's on Amway letterhead, and it's dated January 10th, 1983. Uh, it's written by someone named Ed Postma to someone called Patrick Sullivan. A Postma, who's still alive, he was a lawyer from Grand Rapids, and he was head of Amway's business conduct division. Just from reading the memo, I could tell he was a lawyer. I used to be a lawyer, so I can <laughs> I can definitely tell the the, the style. But the subject of the memo is, quote, analysis of the Brit slash Jaeger system. That, that's, the, that's the quote. So this memo is so interesting because it proves the animosity that existed between the Amway Corporation and the Jaeger Tools organization. So I'll read some quotes from this memo. Oh, I'm so excited. So yeah. So Postma says, quote, 
it is their feeling, their meaning the Jaeger people, it is their feeling that no one at the company completely relates to their efforts in attempting to build the business and organization. There is a constant feeling of competition with the corporation. So this is why I said that the ownership of these two structures don't like each other very much. That's very clear. So a couple more smoking gun phrases from this memo. So, quote, in the words of one diamond from the Northwest, the corporation should manufacture products and get out of the way. This sums up the extent of the relationship that these diamonds wish to have with the company. It has been my judgment on observations that they do not do a better meeting than we do, nor can they provide the same type of motivation as we do. However, in attempting to convince the corporation to stay out of the motivation business, it allows them to do two things. First, it further isolates the business. Second, it allows them to operate a motivation business with little or no competition, end quote. Is that not super telling? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Amway was not happy that this leaked. Not happy at all. So second smoking gun quote, it becomes clear that although they, and again, talking about the Jaeger Diamonds, although they realize that they are Amway distributors, they consider their personal business to be the motivation tool business. I think there is little question that this is where the big money is made. The motivation business is also where their primary allegiance lies, end quote. Wow. I mean, it's very telling. They're, 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 Amway knows. They're like, they're not loyal to Amway mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, there, and there's, there's another quote where they say, well, the motivation business has gotten larger than expected, which means they knew this was happening, but they didn't know it was going to be so big. There's a bunch of other numerous gems from this memo. At one point, uh, Postma dissects some of these rallies. And he says, Jaeger rakes in twenty five dollars or $50,000 for a normal weekend rally or $250,000 on these free enterprise days. There's accounts in some of the apostate texts of particularly people who were selling tapes at these rallies. And they have to have runners to, to go back with like literally buckets of cash because there's just so much cash coming in. Buckets of cash? Yeah. Yeah, that they're they're taken out of the, the front of the hotels. And this is all sales of tapes. Tapes of speeches made at other Amway rallies. So that's why this is a snake eating its tail. It's it's all self-generating. Very, very interesting. Also, probably another reason why Amway maybe doesn't want their reps on social media, because they're yeah. then creating free motivational tapes that mm-hmm. people can just watch on repeat. Right. like, you know what I mean? Yeah. They really want to keep it locked down to like any motivational information mm-hmm. you're getting mm-hmm. is coming from these tapes that we are making and selling to you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's much harder to do that now in the social media era. I mean, in the, in the 80s, it was easy to keep this clamped down. But this is this is why Amway hated the internet. Like just like Scientology hated the internet, absolutely hated it and tried tried to, to Again, you know, medieval, bring up the drawbridge and and put out the troops to keep the modern world from encroaching because they could control what was inside their castle, but not outside.
another little bit from the Postman memo. This is just unbelievable to me. He documents how there were vendors at these rallies who are renting jewelry and flashy clothes and cars for the diamond distributors to use so they can appear rich in order to their distributors who are attending the rally. And uh, 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 what? Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It's like borrowing million dollar jewelry from Neil Lane for the Oscars. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like that sort of Mm -hmm. thing, but it's Amway and they have actual vendors who are renting costumes, essentially their costumes Mm -hmm. to the diamonds to make them look like, oh, this is my Louis. This is my diamond necklace. This is my mink coat. This is my Mm -hmm. amazing suit. They're just rentals. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the kingpins are making money on that. This is another layer of grift. Because the kingpins are collecting a cut from those vendors. It's incredible. But it, it it's so interesting because this is a flat-out admission that the higher pins in Amway do not make the kind of money that they claim to make. And the Amway Corporation knows that in 1982. In 1982. You yeah. guys, I was one years old <laughs> when they figured that out. Yeah, crazy. So the uh, really the punchline of this memo, a direct quote, this is I, I am not making this up. Absolutely direct quote. And and I could even I could even send you the PDF if you want to see it. Quote, the tool business is illegal. Although the Amway business is legal, the tool business is not. It is a pyramid, period. End quote. Oh my god. <laughs> so <laughs> so the Amway Corporation is accusing someone else of being a pyramid scheme and operating a pyramid scheme within their organization. Oh, how the turntables. Yeah, it's so bizarre. (laughs) So this is a really bad time, January 1983, for a couple other reasons. Same month, January 1983, 60 Minutes does an expose on Amway. It's called Soap and Hope. This is mostly about that smaller pyramid. It's about whether the income promises match up with reality, but they get a little bit into the tools cult. So, for example, Mike Wallace interviews Dexter Yeager and his wife, Bertie. Surprisingly, uh, he goes pretty easy on them. Wallace never presses the main issue, whether his income comes from the tools business or the Amway business. Like Wallace pokes a little bit at that, but he doesn't really get at it. There was other footage that was shot for this same story that did not make it to 60 Minutes. But that footage, it's been put up many times by admirers of the Jaegers as like, look, look at wonderful people these are, because they talk about, you know, the Bible and, you know, their, their great faith and how successful they are and that kind of thing. And and it's the, the, the usual kind of Amway speak, but you can find all this stuff on YouTube. So um, if you want to verify what I'm saying, it, it's all there. So still that 60 minute segment, and particularly this Leonard Hall thing spooks the Amway suits enough that they decide they're going to do something. So right after the Postma memo comes out, the Amway founders, Rich DeVos, Jay Van Andel, put out two of their own tapes called Directly Speaking. And these are somewhat infamous in, in Amway lore. These are messages basically to the Diamond Kingpins and the Jaeger people particularly, though they never mentioned them by name. Um, these tapes are also, I believe there are recordings of them available on the web, but certainly there's a full transcription of them. But in the tapes, the Amway suits warn the Kingpins about going too far with the tools business. And they hint that it could call down the thunder on the whole Amway ecosystem. It's not explicitly stated, but probably what I think they mean is that they're afraid the FTC is going to renew the war against them, basically. That's what I think they're afraid of. 
So they also uh, warn them about what is euphemistically called the curiosity approach. Uh, that's a euphemism. That's the bait and switch where prospecting meetings, they get people in, but they don't mention it's Amway. So the the founders talk about that and say, oh, that you can't do that. That's dishonest. But that was heavily done, uh, particularly before this time. I believe it's still heavily done. <laughs> oh, yeah, it is. It is. But this is one of the things that like corporations to rules for distributors that supposedly prohibit this. But it is my understanding. I've heard that it is still done. Would not be surprised. But the big bombshell in these directly speaking tapes is this. And to understand this, you have to realize that the Amway Corporation was putting out a very, very small line of their own motivational tapes. So indirectly speaking, the suits announced that they're going to start counting Amway produced tapes toward distributors bonuses. Now, this is inside baseball. This is the BVPV stuff. Did you have that in LuLaRoe, the BV and PV? Uh, yeah, but it, it was a little different, but yeah, we had to have our own personal volume or personal sales mm -hmm. and the team sales too. And they, we both had to qualify. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this, this is relates to that, but what, it, what the diamonds take this to mean is that Amway is going to begin stepping up the business of its own tools to compete with the Kingpin's tool business. And this is absolute declaration of war. I mean, yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Amway's like, oh, well, we'll do you one better. We will also create tapes. And mm -hmm. guess what? You get credit when you buy them from us. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And they say that what they're doing is they want to create tools for the distributors who are not served by the existing tool system. But the diamonds, they scream bloody murder because they think probably rightfully that Amway is trying to compete with them and get a piece of their business, which understandably why they would do that. Or take them down entirely. Mm -hmm. So uh, right after this happens... Amway execs go coast to coast visiting diamond kingpins and all the kingpins rage at them about how the corporation is trying to kill their business. And the Amway suits say, no, 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 you don't understand what you're doing is illegal. And if the FTC or the courts get involved, they could destroy everything, including us. So you better stop. But the diamonds, they don't want to hear it. So this finally brings us to the Miami showdown. This is the Fontainebleau Hotel episode. This occurs on April 5th, 1983 at the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami, ironically, there's a cosmic irony here, ironically, the very same place, according to Doug Weed, that the Tools Cult was born. So it, it sort of re returns to its, it's like a salmon returning to its uh, place of origin. So at this hotel, which still exists, there's a high-level meeting between Amway corporate representatives and also one of their lawyers, a guy named uh, Bill Abraham, he's now dead. So they're on one side, and then the Tools business kingpins, including Dexter Yeager and several others, are on the other side. This meeting was caught on tape. Uh, it's not available on the live web, but uh, Scott Larson, one of the early uh, website uh, anti-MLM founders in the 90s and 2000s, posted the recordings. This is the amquicks.info site, which is was taken offline, I believe, by uh, Amway litigation, but it's, it's still live on uh, archive.org, so you can still find it there. That's where I found it. But in my opinion, this tape of the Miami meeting is the most illuminating historical source that we have about how MLMs actually work. So this is why I think it's super important. And I don't know the provenance of this tape. I don't know if they knew it was being taped or I assume they must have. And I don't know how it got leaked, but it does exist. I've listened to it several times. Uh, to my knowledge, no other source like this exists. This is the equivalent of like a meeting of high level mafia bosses discussing big strategy. And because there's this cone of silence around the top levels of MLMs, and because in Amway particularly, they tend to be family businesses where no one ever talks and no one ever leaves, 
we have almost no other sources about how these things actually work. So that's why this is such an important source. And it's really weird. They met on a, an outdoor deck at the Fontainebleau Hotel. You can like hear airplanes going by and that kind of thing. And the meeting's really acrimonious, particularly at the beginning. Uh, a bunch of people are shouting at each other, and it's it's really hard to to make out what's being said, which it, incidentally is proof positive of the animosity between the ownership and the policy heads of these two structures, basically, the ostensibly legal Amway business and the legally untested uh, tools business. So they don't like each other. This is the showdown between them, finally. Well, I want to present anywhere even close to that in Hawaii. Instead of Rich coming down there, his only statement was, Jay, up there, you can't be down here. Well, I, I got garbage, but that's, that's I got it. It's not it's one war. I'm created. sensitive to it. They created two wars. I'm sensitive uh, to it. That's why it looks like a smoke screen, because we get around now after yeah. the fact. Because he said the BV was never meant to be competitive, and on the last directly speaking tape, he says hopefully that'll create some competition. Right. So he's contradicting himself. So I, I assume you want some smoking gun quotes from this tape. <laughs> yes, I would love some good quotes from this tape, yeah. please. Okay, so some interesting people were there. Um, Doug Weed was there. Of so he, course, of Doug course Weed was. was there. So he says, quote, uh, the corporations still tell us that these new rules, BV on tapes, is not going to take away from your tape business. Then someone else from the company, or even the same person, says, we got a legal problem. That's why we've got to take your tape business away. Corporations still tell us that these new rules, TV on tape, is not going to take away from your tape business. Then someone else from the company, or even the same person, if it consistently says, we got a legal problem. That's why we got to take your tape business away. It's, it's, uh, we do have a legal problem, but we don't think it's going to take your tape business away or any other business. So uh, an Amway uh, representative, Ron Linda Bloom, I believe is his name, he says, we do have a legal problem, but we don't think it's going to take your tape business away or any other business. We're sensitive to your hurt. No one has been thrown in the slammer. <laughs> <laughs> proof, however, proof that the diamonds see the tools as their primary business, which incidentally contradicts the spin that Doug Weed puts on this same subject on his blog 21 years later which is, oh, the tools business is legitimate. It's just been hijacked by a couple of bad actors. Well, he's one of the bad actors talking about how the company is going to take away their tools business. So <laughs> very, very odd. So uh, Linda Bloom, the, uh, the Amway rep, he says, what I'm hearing you say is the decision was made to, to start to reap some of the rewards of the tape business. And I just got to say, that is not, I have to tell you, that is not why the decision was made to put BV on tapes. Uh, someone, I don't know who, unidentified man responds, but if that works, why split the company over it? Either it will work and you'll get our tape business or it won't work. What I'm hearing you say is the decision was made to start to reap some of the rewards of the tape business. And I just got to say that is not, tell you, that is not why the decision was made to put BB on tape. Well, if that it doesn't it work, well, why split the company over it? You either either it'll work and you'll get our tape business. And yeah. all the, the guy in the sunglasses won't work. Oh, snap. Yeah. Okay, so the real smoking gun. Now, this is this is the equivalent of, of Nixon obstructing justice on the Watergate tapes. Okay, unidentified man. I wish I knew who this person was. So he says, quote, Ron, can I say one thing here that I think that Doug and Jerry, he's talking about Doug Weed and Jerry Herrera, who was the tools kingpin from Puerto Rico. 
Uh, Doug and Jerry have said here that with the tape business, the fact, the reason Amway is a, a 2.5 billion, the reason it's going to 2.5 billion, when I got into Amway, it was 200 million. One of the biggest reasons it went to 1.5 billion was seminars and rallies, was all the things in the Amway business, the seminars and rallies, the tapes and so on, that were voluntarily purchased, that were voluntarily gone to by distributors. All of a sudden, right now, we perceive that the company is strongly, whether it's Rich and Jay or whether it's the company as a whole, strongly coming down on these things. And like somebody said here, is Rich really shooting for 2.5 billion or 2.5 million? We're somewhat confused. And because does he really realize that if it wasn't just to enhance the quality of something that's unintelligible here, SA8 is a great product, LOC is a great product, but it's not going to stand alone. One of the biggest reasons it went from 200 million to 2. Point, or 1.5 billion was uh, seminars and rentals. What was all the things in the Amway business, the seminars and rallies, the tapes and so on, that were voluntarily purchased, was voluntarily going to by distributors. And all of a sudden, right now, we perceive a com the company strong, whether it's Rich and Jay or whether it's the company as a whole, strongly coming down on these things. And like somebody said here, is Rich really shooting for 1.5 or 2.5 billion or 2.5 million? We're somewhat confused. And uh, uh, because does he really realize that it wasn't just the, how the quality of the SAE was moved this list? And you and I have talked about this. SAE is a great product. But the uh, LLC is a great product. But it's not going to stand alone. So Linda Bloom says, I got you. Uh, this man goes on, uh, something, something, as much money as we can get through the tape business, we wouldn't have to. The money would be there to build it. There'd be an incentive to build it, but there's no money. End quote. Smoking gun, because this is an admission by a diamond kingpin and an acknowledgement by an Amway suit that there is no significant money to be made by selling Amway products alone. This is an admission that the tools business is where the money is. Right. And I was Smoking listening gun. to you read that going, they're basically saying, look, the soap is pretty good, but we need the pyramid to push the soap. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So if, if we zoom out from in, in, a, in a historical sense, what uh, Dexter Yeager and Bill Britt did, they realized there was no money to be made in Amway. So they created the tools business as an alternative source of income and then used the Amway Corporation as the front for that business. What a racket. Yeah. Unbelievable. So uh, when it finishes up, Amway is apparently spooked by this hostile reaction by the Diamonds, um, and they must realize uh, that if the diamonds are angry at them, that they will jettison the Amway Corporation and find some other supplier to provide the legal cover they need, which means that Amway, the corporation, loses its entire income stream. Also, the Amway suits 
begin to realize that they cannot compete in the tools business. The Jaeger people have such a, a huge market share, there's no way they can really compete. So probably in 1983, a decision was apparently made with no paper trail uh, to let this continue and to not interfere. I think we're all right in the middle of it. The corporation's over here and uh, uh, we're over here and we feel that we got something really going. We can work it out. We can smooth it out. We'll do whatever it takes to make it happen. As long as we can get back to having some kind of a love relationship and a mutual respect. And that seems to have been thrown aside by both sides. And we're almost acting like rejected lovers. Probably a factor, I think, in this decision was the hope that Ronald Reagan's FTC was not going to reinvestigate Amway or the tools business. So it's like, well, we've got this problem. Maybe we can stack the government and keep them from, encourage them to not come after us. That's what I think happened. Oh, that's how I feel it went down too. Oh, yeah. yeah, clearly. I mean, they're like, we're running a racket. We're running a scam. Our business, our legitimate, quote unquote, legitimate business that the government just said is legitimate is the front for this much bigger pyramid scheme mm -hmm. that we don't really want to be associated with because it's a pyramid scheme. but. We have to be, because if we're not the front, someone else will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God. And of course, Jaeger knows that this is the power he has. It went oh, unchecked for so long when Amway yeah. was busy doing other things. Mm -hmm. It exponentially grew to the point where he was like, no, everybody listens to me. Mm -hmm. So if you mm -hmm. don't want to be associated with our extra pyramid scheme scam that's keeping me in mansions and yachts and boats, then you know what? We're going to call Melaleuca. And mm -hmm. Amway's like, wait, 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 don't be so hasty. Yeah, that's exactly, I think that's exactly what happened. <laughs> I mean, allegedly, it probably wasn't Melaleuca, but you guys know, <laughs> sure. potato, yeah, potato. Yeah, yeah. So the main evidence that we have uh, that this decision was made, uh, there's a testimony at a court, court case by Amway founder Rich DeVos. This is five years later, April 1988. This is one of the many court cases. There were a bunch of the cases that were filed by distributors claiming they were cheated out of the spoils of the tools business. So whenever you see like so-and-so versus Amway, it's usually a one of these big kingpins who is suing somebody to try to get a bigger piece of the business. Happened, happened a lot in the 90s, particularly. They kind of lock this down with some of their later documents with NDAs and you know that sort of thing. But uh, 80s and 90s, a lot of this stuff. So anyway, I have not seen the court transcript. This, is, this was on a, a blog that reproduced what is alleged to be the exact court transcript. And it seems it seems legit. So uh, lawyer asked a question to DeVos. What happened in the area of the tools abuses, the private tools abuses addressed at that meeting? And he means the Miami showdown. So DeVos says, this is 1988, DeVos says, well, those abuses continue to this day. There are a variety of people who complain to me continually about some of those abuses. So that's an ongoing challenge that the organization faces. I said to some of our staff there that I thought it would cost us a few hundred million dollars in volume. I think I said 300 million as we went through a correction phase. I think we lost upward of 300 million in volume as we tried to go through this adjustment period. So the lawyer asks him, it is a position that you took in the early part of 1983. Have you deviated from that position in the Amway Corporation since then with respect to your 10 points, that's the directly speaking tapes, and the subject matter contained therein? And DeVos says, well, let's just say that we dealt with it the way we did. <laughs> 
We did put some people under notice that they were doing things wrong. We pursued, of course, re-education, but we never pursued it to its ultimate goal of really nailing anything down. In the meantime, the volume came down and we started to work at trying to hold the business together, but the problem persisted in any case, end quote. So he testified under oath that he gave up and let them wow. do what they wanted. Yeah, essentially. So incredibly, this situation, so far as I know, uh, remains basically unchanged 39 years later. So through its political influence, uh, Amway has been able to keep the FTC from renewing the attack. That's always been the sort of Damocles kind of hanging over their heads. And it's the one thing they've been afraid of for the last 39 years. But they've managed to keep that at bay largely because of political influence. That story is well known. Dexter Yeager, his wealth and influence continued to grow. Uh, he had a debilitating stroke in 1986, but he continued on. He became basically a mentor to PTL televangelist Jim Baker throughout the 70s and 80s. In fact, Yeager was on the board of PTL. Uh, and Doug Weed, there he is again, channeled Baker and Yeager toward the Bush family. And in fact, Baker was a spiritual advisor to Bush the first. Most people don't know that. Oh, wow. <clears throat> really? Yeah. This is before he was disgraced, of course. But, And in fact, when Baker was laid low by the Jessica Hahn scandal, this is in 1987, and he goes into hiding uh, because he can't go home because Tammy Faye is now uh, pissed off at him. Where does he go? He goes to the guest house on Dexter Yeager's estate. What? <laughs> Indeed. Jaeger and Bill Britt, his tape uh, supplier, eventually they had some kind of falling out. I don't know much about this, but it was probably over tape revenue. And then Britt turned his attention to proselytizing Amway in India. Britt died in January 2013. Uh, one of Jaeger's sons today sits on the board of Liberty University, which was founded by Jerry Falwell. And Jaeger himself died in January 2019. So that's the crazy story of Dexter Jaeger and the tools business. Oh my gosh. Uh, this whole entire time, I know you guys can't see me, but I'm like writing notes. I'm writing down names. I'm like, oh my gosh, I need to dig into this. And th this incredible. I mean, answered a lot of questions, uh, also posed a lot more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but what an incredible story. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and it's it's not that the story is unknown. It's It's just that no one has like paid attention to this particular story the way it's played out. And I, I did find a lot of these sources within kind of the broader sort of anti-MLM community. So it's not like this stuff is totally unknown, but I just don't think anyone has really spent a lot of time explaining its importance or tracing it back to its roots. And there is a lot of work and some historians, uh, There's there were a couple of uh, dissertations that I found by history graduate students in the beginning 90s and then through I think the latest one was in 2019. There's been three or four graduate students. At least one of them is a professor somewhere. Um, very few historians have been interested in this. And the the stuff that I've found, the historical writing on this I've found has generally tended to try to put Amway in the context of like American commercial culture broadly. Like there's lots of talk about the, you know, the Yankee peddlers of the 18th and 19th century and the salesman culture, you know, the Willie Loman, you know, Fuller Brushman type culture of the 20th century and how Amway is a sort of a, a response to that. But I, I think it's also something very different because this, I mean, MLM obviously is, is a large scale grift, but the reason why it's been able to take such a huge foothold in our economy is because the nature of of capitalism has changed 
over particularly the last 50 years. You know, we're seeing we're seeing this now where you know this NFT thing that blew up in the last year or so, which clearly was a grift, you know, bored apes. I mean, come on, that's just that's ludicrous. But as capitalism degenerates, you know, the grifty nature of these types of things become a larger, larger sector of the economy, particularly when the people who do these things start buying political influence, as clearly the multi-level marketing industry has done over the last particularly 20, 30 years. So this is something that under the rules of American business as they existed up until really the 70s should not have been really continued to exist. And in fact, you see that moment in the early 80s where Amway was really clinging to a lifeline and they managed to avoid the bullet. And it, it's just amazing that their survival is so intertwined with this political influence and the religious right and the rise of conservatism. And that gets into the story of the nexus between religious conservatives and Trump, who is is heavily involved in the multi-level marketing industry and members of his family. You know, all this stuff is connected. And I think it's hard to take a step back and see all those connections kind of organically, but I think they're there. And I think that's an important story that needs to be told. Yeah, absolutely. There are so many connections and I think it's just important to know them, right? You can choose what you want to do with the information that you're given, but you should at least be given that information. Mm -hmm. um, and thank you so much. I, I just, this was such an incredibly interesting story which again, opens up so many more names for people to start Googling and for different rabbit holes for me to go down to create even more bonus content to really tell uh, in an entertaining way, sort of the history of multi-level marketing and the history of the different things that come in and out that really create uh, what modern pyramid schemes look like today mm -hmm. and how they operate. Yeah. So thank yeah. you so much, Sean. Um, I would love to have you on anytime to help me tell MLM history stories. This was seriously such a fun chat. Yes, it was. It was for me too. So I, I really appreciate uh, the chance to come on and and to to be on one of one of the podcasts I listen to all the time. So it's very fun to <laughs> very fun to, to be part of that. Thank you so much for listening to Life After MLM. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And follow us on social media at Life After MLM Podcast and my advocacy at The Real Roberta Blevins. You can find all of the links to the social accounts in our show notes. And if you just listened to that incredible story and you thought, oh my God, I have a story just like that that needs to be told, hit me up, therealrobertablevins at gmail.com. I would love to have you on the show to share your story and start your journey in life after MLM. See you next time, Hans. Music